Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for tuning in today. It is a Guy Talk Day. That's how we're going to get the first hour started. Got a great uh, second hour planned for you as well. We're going to talk a little bit about movement and exercise in hour two. And then we're going to uh, chat with Brooke McLaughlin. She's written a book called Everyday Prayers for Peace. Hmm. If you are looking for peace in the new year and who isn't. So that's the plan. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Maybe you've had a question for your pastor that you never got around to asking. You can ask my power panel today. Pastor Tom Parrish is here and Jeff Verdorn. So, gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. Good afternoon, Bill. Thank you. So here's a message that a friend of mine sent me, and it was a, a quote from the Reverend John Stott, and I found this interesting, and I thought this would be a good topic for us to discuss. Here is the, the quote. Close contact with people involves an uncomfortable exposure of ourselves to them. It is much easier in both fellowship and witness to keep our distance. We're more likely to win the admiration of other people if we do. It is only at close quarters that idols are seen to have feet of clay. Are we willing to let people come close enough to us to find out what we are really like and to know us as we really are? True witness, born of friendship, requires a great degree of holiness in us as well as love. The nearer we get to people, the harder it is to speak for Christ. Is not this the reason why the hardest people of all to whom to witness are members of our own family. They know us too well. Thoughts, Jeff? That is so true. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's so much easier to talk to someone that you don't know about the Lord than it is with people who are close to you in your own family because, because of what John just said. You know, in, in a court of law, one of the strategies that a an attorney will use is to discredit the witnesses, right? Mm -hmm, so they're mm -hmm. going to get up there and testify about something that they believe is true or they saw, and you try to discredit them in some ways. People who know us the best see that we don't live out this thing called Christianity very well uh, often, and they see us for, with all of our faults and all of our errors. And, you know, I saw a bumper sticker once that kind of sums up the reality of true Christianity that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And when you understand that a Christian who is forgiven and made holy and blameless before God doesn't always live it out perfectly, that's pretty much normal, right? And so, uh, but that's, it does. When we don't live out our calling, we discredit our testimony. You know, being a disciple, we often define that as following Jesus, uh, following his word, all true. And I, I really push that. But I think being a disciple also means finally being honest with the Lord about ourself and being honest with those around us. Now, that doesn't mean you need to tell everybody every little detail of your life, but I think um, I've been a pastor a long time. Pastors get caught in this trap of perfection. 
the pastor is right. The pastor knows what he's talking about. No, not always. We make big mistakes like everybody else. But here's the problem. If we're not willing to admit to that and really point people back to Jesus and say, yeah, I have this role. This is my job. I make errors, but we're going to do this together. Then it's easy to cover that up. And I think for pastors especially, that's why pastors get so isolated in our culture, because they don't even want their own families to talk too much about who they really are. Well, who we really are are redeemed people in Jesus Christ who have problems like everybody else, but we're clinging to what Jesus has done, and that's where we have the authority to speak because he's called sinners to proclaim him to the world. Hmm. Nicely done, gentlemen. Have you had this in your prayer life where you pray for someone else to come into your uh, a loved one's life? Uh, you know, a child goes off to college and you, you pray that a believer will come alongside or there's someone that you want very much to come know the Lord. And you know this person, but yet you're praying for someone else to bring the message. Has that happened? Well, it's Absolutely. Easy. Yeah, it's too uh, easy for, to for do. For me, I have prayed this a number of times for family members, children, friends of mine. And it is it is amazing how you look back and uh, and see that that is exactly what has happened. God has brought somebody in these people's lives. And uh, I think we need to make sure we're like the, uh, the 10 that were healed before Jesus and make sure we come back and thank the Lord when we do see him answer prayer like that. I agree. And, and part of the problem is when even with our kids or somebody else, when we feel we should witness to them or talk to them, again, we're close and we're afraid to say something. And you that's where I'm always praying, like in my, my son's life and grandkids' lives, that not only do, do they have grandma and grandpa, uh, we only get to see them occasionally, but that the Lord will bring people into their life that will really touch them and guide them spiritually. And... Uh, it's a constant prayer, and it hasn't ended in the last 40 years, so I'm still at it, guys. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and let's just remind each other of the power of the invite, where you're making an invitation to even have a conversation. Yeah. Hey, would you ever like to talk sometime about you know, your, your faith journey and where you've been and what you think about God? And You can just throw it out there and make it a topic of conversation. Invite people to have a conversation. It took me a while to learn this truth, but I would get people that would call me five years later and say, do you remember saying this to me at such and such a meeting? No, I don't remember it. And then they'll quote it. And if it sounds good, I'll say, yeah, I did say that. Didn't I? <laughs> but yeah. it's, the truth of the matter is we don't know when the Lord's going to wake somebody up. Amen. And our thing is never burn a bridge. Don't cut somebody off to the point where they can't, they feel they can never talk to you again. Keep that invitation open. Keep that door open. You never know who's going to walk back through. And in my 45 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people walk through that door again, 5, 10, even 25 years later, which absolutely blows me away. But it happens, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. All you right. Know, we're called to... Oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, no, no. Please no, don't. No, I just... We're called to love one another and not just love them... Uh, so that they come into the kingdom, we're just called to love them, right? We yeah. hope they come into the kingdom, but sometimes I think Christians, you know, they try and they try and they don't never accept Christ, and then they write them off, like uh, Tom was just talking about. No, don't write them off. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard of Rosario Butterfield. She yeah. was a liberal professor at a university that an, an older uh, guy who associated with the college invited her over to dinner something like 150 times, and she was totally against the gospel. She was for 
every left-wing cause there was and totally against God. But this guy just loved her and loved her and loved her and kept having dinner with her, and eventually she came to Christ. Yeah. You know, one of the problems I've seen, I've done a lot of evangelism in my ministry, and I've been blessed to be able to go and study under people that have taught major evangelism programs, and I respect them all. But the problem is the way we teach evangelism, we make it a one-time event. You knock on the door. You give them the gospel. If they don't receive it, you go on to the next door. It doesn't really work that way. Now, I know people have come to Christ that way, but in most cases, it is kind of like the the uh, drops of water. You just keep dropping the water, the opportunity, and the door opens sooner or later. And that's exactly what you're saying, Jeff, and that's exactly what I believe we need to be doing. Well done. I had another thought, but I've forgotten it. So there you go. <laughs> I think it was a good thought too. It was. I could yeah. see your mind turning. Yeah, I always, I always let you guys talk, and then, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have this thought in ninety seconds, and then ninety seconds rolls around, and gone. <laughs> well, it'll come back. Okay. Well, uh, when we were having a, a little meeting this week, and my colleague Susie Larson, who was on the show, um, I mean, on the network the hour before I just showed up, she was talking about a person from the LGBTQ community that was listening to her and contacted her and said, I disagree with everything you're saying, but I love the way you're saying it. Incredible. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing comment? That, that's how the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts. Yeah. Because they're saying, how can Susie have these opinions or these beliefs and yet be such a wonderful person? Amen. And the more that that happens, the more people are drawn to people like Susie and quite honestly like you, Bill, and, and many others. And people begin to open up because I've worked with, with people in the LBGT community. I've worked with people that tried to go through tran transgendered. And most of us answer the questions on the surface. Well, you had this feeling all the way along, huh? You were born with this. Well, what can you do? I think the danger for Christians is to simply say, well, you know, Jesus says you're going to go to hell. That's a sinner. You don't do that. That's not where you start. What you start with is, hey, I'm willing to talk to you anytime about this. I care about you. Mm -hmm. you're, you're facing challenges. You know, when you reach questions you can't answer, I'm always here to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I find that I people that, will come back and talk. I think the church sometimes classifies certain sins as being much worse than other sins. Sin keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven, regardless of what it is, whether it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, for that matter. And... For God says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, there's a lot of churches that fly flags and have signs up that say all are welcome here. Christianity is is should own this idea that all are welcome here. God mm -hmm. has wishes none to perish. He wants all to be saved. He wishes that the ends of the earth turn to him, all the ends of the earth turn to the Lord and be saved. So all are absolutely welcome in Christianity. Now, one of the things that we shouldn't do, however, as a church is stop calling sin, sin. Right. So we can love the person, we can love the sinner and desire that they're saved, but we can still call sin, sin. Mm -hmm. All Agreed. right. We're, we're going to have lots more guy talk, but we need your questions. So let me know. Send them over. The text line is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. My friends around the studio table today are Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back.
Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. All right, this is the time of the week where we do what we call Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. And my two distinguished gentlemen uh, are Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn, making up my power panel today. And we are looking for your questions, and we'd love to hear what it is you would like us to discuss or questions you would like us to attempt to answer. 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. Uh, how, with all the verses in Scripture... Prior to the Gospels, did Satan not figure out God's plan for redemption of mankind? Because it takes spiritual enlightening for that to happen. Mm. And just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you, see, you hear the wind, you see, where, you, know, you see where it goes, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't have any control over it. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, if there's not spiritual enlightening from the Lord, it's not going to happen. And Satan doesn't get that spiritual enlightenment, and as a result, he can't figure it all out. So for him, it's still a mystery. I do this lesson on Satan, kind of who he was, how he was created. Good. He was created good, by the way. He fell. He chose to fall and to rebel. And his fall and his eventual demise, he is a defeated foe. So whenever we talk about Satan, we should remind everybody he is a defeated foe. Foe. But the question is, how does this wonderful creature who knows God, knows that he's omniscient and omnipotent, why would he even birth in his mind the idea of rebellion, knowing that God would just squash it right Mm. away and would have the power to do that? And the only answer I can come up with is pride. Mm-hmm. Now, Scripture says pride goes before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. So I think pride is probably what blinded him. Um, so, you know, did he, would he know that God would be able to respond to his rebellion like he did? Yes, he could have known that. Should he have known that, that he, what he did to Christ on the cross would ultimately lead to the redemption of mankind? Yeah, you could probably figure it out by reading the clues in the Old Testament. Did he truly understand it? I I don't know if he did or not, but he's been blinded by his pride, and that probably is part of the answer. Well, the more we look to ourself and the more we try to build up ourself, the less we're really looking at the truth and looking at Jesus. And as a result, I can do that very easily, Jeff. I can get caught up in what I'm doing and how smart I am and what great plans I have and then fall flat on my face because I really don't know what the Lord wants. It's usually in those moments where I'm backed into a corner, I can't figure it out, I don't know where to go, and I cry out, Jesus, help me, enlighten me, that the ideas come, or people come to my door and say, hey, pastor, I've got an idea. And so it's that dependence on Jesus, and that's something Satan does not do. You know, Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done. Satan says the exact opposite. Let my will be done, right, and ignore God's will. Um, So we, as followers of Christ, should obviously be imitators of Christ. And I think that simple line saying, not my will, not my desires, not my plans, but yours. And I think that's a safe place to walk with Christ. Hmm. Agreed. So there was a Pew Research study I read this week 
that said 73% of people believe that heaven is a reward for good behavior. So that's roughly, what, 7 out of 10? So when you hear that, instantly I thought, boy, we've got work to do. Go ahead, Jeff. I'll give you the first shot at this one. <laughs> this is a good one. We, we Obviously, we do. I, I think this idea of rewards for good works or good deeds is so ingrained in us that we take that idea to God and his ways. And what, what I mean by that is ever since we're small, when we're children, we hear this, oh, good Johnny, bad Johnny, you know, good Johnny, here's a reward, here's a treat, here's an ice cream cone, here's a certificate, here's a grade, here's a blue ribbon, here's a trophy, even we get older, here's a diploma, here's a job, here's a raise, here's the corner office, here's the salesman of the year award. Everything we get in this life is pretty much based on what we do, and we earn what we get. Uh, which is good, by the way. We should work and we should do everything uh, as if doing it for the Lord, and we will be rewarded for the by the world for those. But we take that to God, and we then say, "Well, that must be how God works. We must have to do good works and and to get into heaven." And I think a lot of us think, "Well, I may not be that good." But I know I'm better than the guy down the street, and I'm, I'm pretty confident God grades on a curve, so I'm going to be in the top half, so I must make it. The problem with that is God says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is not better than the guy down the street. The standard is righteousness, and the only way, and the scripture is very clear on this, the only way to obtain righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ. Exactly right. And here's the problem. We have a tendency to deceive ourselves as to how good we are. And sometimes we can deceive ourselves into how bad we are and think the Lord would never forgive me. That's another myth. He'll forgive anyone that comes to him. But our problem is we we can't get it. We want to have the final word in everything. We still want to be the boss. We still want to say, hey, Lord, look what I've done for you. And I learned a long time ago, and I'm probably going to mess up the lyrics on this hymn, so, you know, help me out here. You know, nothing to the cross I bring, only to the cross I cling. goes something like that. And that's it. I come to the cross of Jesus Christ um, with nothing. Even after all these years of being a pastor, all these years of leading people to Christ and discipling, I come with nothing except what Jesus has done. So, therefore, it doesn't matter how good I've been or how bad I've been, it's do I finally submit to Jesus and let him have the final word. Tom, you bring up a very important point. I think the two obstacles we started with, I, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven, but you also mentioned this the, the other aspect, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, is, oh, I'm too bad yeah. for God to really save me, right? So mm-hmm. I think both of those are barriers or obstacles for people coming to Christ. They think they're good enough to get into heaven, that's one, Barry, but it, uh, on the other end of the spectrum is, I'm so bad. God doesn't know what I've done. He can never forgive me. And that is is a false barrier to salvation as well. long time ago, I told a story about an uncle who died in the early 70s. He ran around on my aunt all the time with other women. He was involved in Ku Klux Klan. And during Prohibition, he ran bootleg liquor across Lake Erie when it was frozen. He was a character, and his kids turned out to be characters too. Here's the bottom line. We go back to town. I just have, uh, I think I'm still in seminary. My wife and I go back to town to visit family. 
And mom says, go over and see Aunt Florin and Uncle Dick, which we did. And it was nice to see them. My Aunt Florin said to Jan, let's go out. I'll show you my garden. And I'm sitting there with Uncle Dick. He now has throat cancer. He's dying. He's got maybe three to four months, five to live, something like that. And he can barely talk. And I looked at him and I said, Uncle Richard, are you ready to meet Jesus? And he looked at me and he said, no. I said, why not? I've been too bad of a man. He could never accept me. And I was able to share with him, that's ridiculous. Jesus will accept you right now. And 15 minutes later, he got on his knees with me. Here's this 85-year-old man, got on his knees with tears streaming down his face, repenting and asking Jesus forgiveness. After he died for the next 10 years, my aunt, every time I'd see her, she'd say, you need to know after 65 years of marriage, those last six months were the best we ever had. Jesus moved in his heart deeply. So there's nobody beyond redemption, but the devil wants you to believe you've gone too far and there's no hope at all. And that's a big lie. The biggest lie out there. Mm-hmm. It is. What a great story, Tom. Yeah, that is a pretty powerful story. And there's been some requests lately for, uh, I know, Tom, I think you answered it, of people curious as to the the best verses to bring to someone's uh, deathbed. Oh, uh, sure. And especially if they, have, if they have pushed God aside in their life, and yet you want to show up and, and love them with the truth of the gospel. There are many verses out there. I've actually got a printed list of this, which, Bill, I'm willing to give you if anybody wants to ask for it, and we can send it out. But there are quite a few passages that I use for reassurance when people are on their deathbed. I love John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll take you to be with me. If somebody's non-believer on their deathbed, you know, I remind them of the thief on the cross. And I'll read the story to them that even the thief on the cross who mocked Jesus in the beginning of the crucifixion finally came to realize who Jesus was and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? No, I'm sorry. You didn't do all the things. You didn't get baptized. You didn't go to church. You didn't. No, he says, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And folks, that is for you as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, And that's such a powerful story when you think about it because he wasn't too bad to receive salvation, and it wasn't too late for him to receive salvation. The thief on the cross in the last moments of his life believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. What yeah. a beautiful story. Yeah. Good observations. That's why I pay you guys the zero money. <laughs> All right. But the fringe benefits are wonderful. They are good, it, I gotta admit. All right, we've got a very exciting two-day campaign coming up next week with one child. If you ever thought about sponsoring a child, Give it some prayer. I sponsored one last year. Amazing. And I'll tell you about it next week. But if you want to consider it, you can go uh, see many of the children right now that are looking for a sponsor just like you. You can go see them at MyFaithRadio.com. If you have a question for the Guide Talk panel, let me know. Please send it over on the text line. It is open for you, 877-933-248. Eight four. Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my guests, and we will be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. Well, 
what's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We were talking about what's for dinner prior to the show, and I, I was hearing that one of the uh, panelists might be having a nice piece of steak tonight. And I'm just saying, um, I'm feeling a little resentful. I'm not having steak either, and I'm missing <laughs> that one a lot. I wonder who's having steak. Who's having steak tonight? Uh, let's move on. Okay, uh, here's a great question. Thank you for your great question. Send them over, 877-933-2484. This comes out of Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 4. Question is, should we forgive someone who does not repent, as Luke 17, 1 to 4 indicates? I think no, but we should always be ready to forgive should they repent. Jeff, I'm going to look to you first. I agree. I know it says, if they repent, forgive them, in verse 3 there. I, it's never wrong to forgive somebody when they've wronged you. I think forgiveness has much more to do with us than it does to the other person. We have a tendency when someone wrongs us to uh, to want God to to judge them, to call down you know judgment on them. I've been wronged, and I am now in in the right, or I'm now justified to do some other action or behavior against them in some way, and uh, or it can develop into this root of bitterness that Scripture talks about, where you just become kind of bitter and angry and so on. So I I don't think it's ever wrong. Uh, to forgive someone. Now, if they do come to you and ask for their repentance, that's a great time to, yes, offer their forgiveness. There is a great story. Corey Tenboom, who spent time in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, uh, was went on the speaking tour after the war. And one of the guards, if I remember the story correctly, and, and maybe, Tom, you've probably heard this as well, mm-hmm. one of the guards from the camp came up to her after she was speaking and said, I've, I've received Christ, I'm now a Christian, Fraulein, will you forgive me? And she said it took every ounce of her and the power of the Holy Spirit to reach out her hand and say, yes, I forgive you. Um, it's just an unbelievable uh, a story of forgiveness. But yes, I don't think it's ever wrong to forgive somebody. I'm looking at verse 3 in Luke 17, and it starts out, I'm reading from the ESV, pay attention to yourselves. <laughs> That's an imperative <laughs> when Jesus is speaking. And then he goes in talking about forgiveness, because obviously forgiveness, even with repentant people, wasn't a very common thing back then. And I'm not sure how many people repented, but Jesus is saying, look, we have a whole new kingdom here, you know, with this new covenant. He doesn't say exactly those words here, but that's what he's talking about. And in that new covenant, anybody who repents, you forgive them because you've been forgiven. But it goes even further than that. Even if they don't repent, the call is to forgive people for a very simple reason. You're doing it for Jesus' sake, and you're getting out of Jesus' way so that he can deal with them directly, and you don't become the burden in the situation of trying to hold on to what they've done. And I've met people and I've counseled people that are holding on to burdens that their parents committed or sins they committed. Mom and dad are now dead and gone. Mom and dad never repented, and they're still carrying this burden. You know, And so I go back to that verse, pay attention. <laughs> that's that's ridiculous. Don't do that. Jesus can deal even with your parents in eternity. What you need to do is forgive for Jesus' sake for what he's done for you and let him deal with everybody else. And uh, and then those who come to you in this life and repent, yes, forgive them for Jesus' sake. It's a tough thing because most of us want to get even or most of us want to see people. I had one woman in my church say, you know, I'm really open to forgiving my brother for what he did to me when he comes crawling to me on broken glass on his knees. It doesn't work that way. 
you know, we forgive not because the other person's worthy, not because the other person is so sincere, but we've been forgiven. And how can we do any less than what Jesus has done for us? Because he was looking for you and me before we ever went looking for him. That is the clear principle in Scripture, that we have been forgiven much, so we should be forgiving. Mm-hmm. And and so that forgiveness is amazing. How many times we let unforgiveness, all the way back in our childhood, affect us in a, as an adult today? Uh, it's it's a powerful force, this, this idea of unforgiveness. It is a very powerful force, and it can affect us, even affect our, our health. And But one thing that I always like to talk about when we talk about forgiveness is, remember, forgiveness is not ignoring what had happened. Mm-mm. If someone, for example, stole from you, you can forgive them. Uh, hopefully, the person uh, is felt moved to make some kind of restoration because that's always helpful to the forgiveness process. But you're not going to put him in charge of your finances again. Uh, there's consequences. Or if they broke the law, they might have to go to prison uh, and, and face the, the consequences of breaking the law. So it doesn't mean – forgiveness doesn't mean there's no consequences at right. all. There There can and should oftentimes be consequences to bad behavior. But that's not – related to your forgiving them or not. The problem is most of us want to dispel out what the consequences are. That's not our job. Our job is to obey the Lord. He spells out the consequences, and if that involves the law, it involves the law. That doesn't mean that we hide it. If there's something, if somebody comes to me and tells me they've molested a child, now under the law, technically, I'm supposed to report that. Well, I would report that anyway because that child is helpless and innocent and needs guidance and needs protection. And I want people to repent. I want people to change. But there are consequences to behavior, just like when you drive too fast on the road or you drive off the road at a high rate of speed. You know, there are consequences, and that's the reality. But Jesus offers a remedy. All right, gentlemen, as we talk about forgiveness, the text line's lighting up a little bit here. Here are two questions from two different listeners. One is... So does God forgive us if we don't repent? And the other comment is, should we or can we forgive Satan? Hmm. Let's start with that I've last one I've never heard that question I've before. never heard that's it either. A, and I don't know anything answer. in Scripture that directs us to even consider that. Yeah, I, I no, agree. No, I agree. Yeah. So probably so on not. The first one, on the first one, does God, look, God forgives those who turn to him in, in their sin, recognizing their sin, and ask God for forgiveness. Remember, 1 John 1, 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins before God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So there is an act on a part of man before God. Remember, Luke 17 is not talking about forgiveness unto salvation. That's between two brothers, right? That's what that right. section of Scripture is about. For God, yes, the requirement is to "Quote unquote, repent, or as uh, as Roman says, to believe, as John three sixteen says, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. In that process of believing, you are turning from the world and from its ways and from sin, and turning to God to receive His forgiveness for your sins." First John one nine. So that process of repentance is a requirement for salvation. It's the process of turning from sin and the world. To God. Here's the trick of Satan, though, and I've watched him do this to people. So they, they come and they, they, maybe the first time they receive Jesus into the life, and they repent. And then Satan goes to work on them. Well, you haven't told him everything you've done. There are things you probably did when you were 10 years old that you've forgotten about. 
You know, you think he's going to forgive that? And people carry these burdens of what they can't remember. The truth of it is, when we talk about repentance in the Bible, yes, we openly confess to Jesus and to others, when it's appropriate, things that we're conscious of. But it is the spirit of repentance that has to work within us, that we are there prepared to always repent with whatever the Lord brings up. But that doesn't mean I'm accountable for every sin I committed 35 years ago but can't remember today because it is in that spirit of forgiveness and trusting Jesus, I walk in that forgiveness. Now, if he wants to bring that up to me, he will. But Satan wants you to believe, hey, folks, that was a long time ago, and, and you can't even remember everything. How do you expect Jesus to forgive you? That's a lie. Yeah, and and one of the things that Christians need to remember is that when you receive forgiveness from God, it's complete. Yeah. It is a complete forgiveness. Uh, You know, Paul talks about this list of sins in Corinthians where he says, you know, all these people who do any of these activities will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to remember as Christians, we stand forgiven before God. He no longer counts our sins against us. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. So that is our stance. That is our state. That's our identity before God is we stand forgiven. So let's remind everybody and the listener of that very uh, important biblical truth. I saw how this works one time by a Bible teacher. They did a good job. And this is what I would remind people of. Imagine you're you're learning about forgiveness. And the teacher says, okay, uh, Bill, I want you to go, or Jeff, I want you to give me five of your, your sins, you know, as best you can. And he writes them on the chalkboard. And these are one of these portable chalkboards on the little three-legged thing. And uh, so, you know, you confess those. And he goes, great. And he goes up and he wipes them off. And then he goes to another chalkboard and turns that around, and it's got 10 more sins you've committed, and he wipes that off too, even though you didn't bring that up. And then he turns another chalkboard. So when Jesus wipes out our sin, he doesn't just forgive what we can verbalize. It is that spirit of, of repentance that says, it's not me, it's you, Jesus, and I'm going to trust in you alone. He wipes the slate clean, and we walk in that clean slate because of the blood of Jesus. And even more powerful is the idea that the power of sin is broken in our life. Yeah, yeah. In addition to having all of our sins forgiven, the power of sin has been broken. It's broken because we now know that we have a Redeemer and we can't be controlled by it anymore. We're people who only play the game with sin. Oh, I'm sorry, I did that. If if I upset you, please forgive me. Mm -hmm. That's a game player. The bottom line is, Jesus wants to break the power of that sin, and Bill, you're exactly right. That's how he does it. Mm-hmm. And that is Romans six is so beautiful on this. It, it's talk. It's full of these lines where it says, "You used to be a slave to sin, but now you've been set free from sin, and Amen. we have become a slave to righteousness." That's who you were. Sin no longer has the power over you. It's been set aside. For sin will not be your master. Romans six says, because you are not under this law, you are under grace. Oh, what a what a line. That's great. Yep. Staying in the forgiveness lane, because that's where we're sort of headed today. Another uh, question is, if uh, I forgive someone, do I have to have a relationship if the person is in denial of wrongdoing, like a child-parent issue? Hmm. 
Well, let's hold off on the parent-child thing because I think that's a special relationship I agree. that is going to be treated differently than than someone you just know, an acquaintance, a friend, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's scripture says that that we need to love, uh, you know, our neighbor and love our brother. It doesn't necessarily say that we have to hang out with them every Saturday, you know. Um, so we don't have to necessarily be best friends with everybody. The love of God. Is is remember it's this agape love. It's this full and complete self-sacrificial love, and and there are people that I can honestly say I love with the love of Christ, but I don't necessarily want to hang out with them. Right now, a parent-child thing. I think that's different. I think in a parent-child relationship, you should be doing everything you can to bring full and complete reconciliation between a parent and a child. I agree, and here's the problem. We live in a woke culture. The culture says you can't even go to Thanksgiving meal with a family member that voted the opposite of you. I mean, that's how ridiculous we become in this thing. The point is, you're right, Jeff, we don't have to be real close to people that maybe have sinned against us or we've had a real problem with, but it doesn't mean we exclude them. It doesn't mean we just throw them away. And so, you know, yeah, if they're going to show up at an anniversary party, we're going to show up too. Uh, it, when you're dealing with somebody that is unrepentant and belligerent, uh, that takes a special grace of the Lord to deal with. And I've got, I've had family members like that that are just ex- exactly that way. And the challenge I've had is, can I go there without getting really verbal and angry at them? And is there anything I can do to still reach out and love to them? And I'm not going to tell you I do it. I'm not going to tell you it's easy to do. But the Lord's always pushing me to do it. All right, we'll take a short break and come back with more Guy Talk. Still have lots of time for your questions, so please text them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to Guide Talk. Great questions coming in, and they're fast and furious, so let's move through these. Um, as a father, am I biblically required to provide, to provide for my adult children, like in my will, who choose to have no relationship with me? Jeff? Oh, who choose to have no relationship uh, with him. Right. That kind of, I was thinking one way to start, and then it kind of changed my mind at the end with that last statement there. Uh, the Old Testament, and I, I can't remember where it was, it says, a wise man stores up an inheritance for his children and his children's children. So I think it is a biblical idea to provide, to store up for your children, for the, the future generations. I think that it's very biblical. But, oh, if you've had a child who's rejected you and walked away, I 
I think I would fall on the side of you are no longer under that obligation to provide any kind of inheritance for them if they have walked away from from you, your provision and from your protection, from your love, from your from their relationship with you. Yeah, that's such a tricky one because you think about it, how many of us have walked away from Jesus and yet he still keeps blessing us. And and it's such a challenge and and I agree with you Jeff. I mean, I've dealt with families that are in this situation and they are so hurt by their kids and so hurt by that rejection. And it seems like the inheritance is the only leverage they have. And up to this point, my counsel has simply been, you have to go before the Lord Jesus and let him give you discernment on that one. Because in some cases, it will turn them around even after you're gone. They'll say, my goodness, dad actually did this after all that we went through. For others, it will never turn them around. But what they get in the inheritance all stays in this world. They don't take any of it with them. We're still after the redemption of our kids, even in those difficult times, and that's a hard thing to do. And, and I'm not going to kid anybody. This is not easy. You need a lot of prayer, and you need to talk to the Lord about this one. Mm-hmm. All right. How can heaven be joyful if loved ones are unbelievers and not saved? Jeff? You know, at the this is this is kind of judgment day stuff. This is what's called in scripture and revelation the great white throne judgment. And it is the day when before the throne of God, who is sitting on his throne, and Christ, who is there, who all authority to judge has been given to him, and us as believers, don't you know, Paul says that we will judge the world, uh, are on one side of this throne, and before us is the sea of lost humanity from the beginning of time. And they're names, Scripture says, are not found in the Lamb's book of life. And as a result, they are thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And that is, interestingly, when it says in Scripture that God wipes away every tear, that's the moment that he does that, because I think that's going to be a very sad day. It's going to be a sad day for God. God wishes none to perish. He doesn't want people to to go to hell. He doesn't want people to be thrown into the lake of fire. He wished them to be saved. But everybody has to believe in order to be saved. Thessalonians says it this way, they perish because they refused to love the truth and thus be saved. I think in our glorified form, with a glorified understanding of God's ways, we are going to fully understand that it had to be this way, mm-hmm. because in in a, in a passage just a few verses later, God says that nothing unrighteous will ever enter in to the eternal new heaven and new earth, and they never were made righteous by faith, so they couldn't come in. And we will understand that so much more fully and understand it had to be that way. It's a good word. During World War II, in one of the camps, some kids for stealing— were going to be hung by the Nazis. And I remember reading in the book, the people that were there, one man was standing next to a woman, and as they're hanging these kids, and these are like 14 and 15-year-olds, the woman cried out, where is God? Where is God? And then he heard somebody else say, he's up there hanging with those kids. The point is, is that on the day of judgment, when all this is over, Jesus absorbs all the sorrow in his shed blood. And you and I won't have sorrow Because it's not going to be like earth with our families and that. We will understand his righteousness at that point. And uh, he is the one that grieves. Uh, I see nothing about us really grieving in heaven. But justice will be done, and we have to trust in him. And it's in him that all of this will be taken care of. 
because uh, we have family members that are not going to believe, and they're not going to be there. But everybody I've talked to, you know, it's near death, uh, has simply told me the only thing that's important is they're seeing Jesus. Mm. All right, you know, that that reality of that future day that's coming uh, should be motivating for the body of Christ right now today, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, amen to that. All right, John 1, 33 says that Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit, but there were people filled with the Holy Spirit before Jesus came, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Jeremiah. What's the difference between those instances of the Holy Spirit working in people pre-Christ and the baptism of Holy uh, Spirit of people who believe in Jesus. We do see the Spirit working at people in the Old Testament, not only from the list that that the the listener uh, gave, but also in uh, all the kings of Israel and all the prophets of Israel, um, and 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 people who worked on the temple were anointed with the Holy Spirit for a time for the work that they did. So the Holy Spirit did come upon people in the Old Testament. But remember. Remember what David said, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. There was, there was, and and the spirit did leave Saul. When he was king of Israel, he was anointed with the spirit, and then the spirit left him. So nobody in the Old Testament received the indwelling spirit, this new life, new creation, born again, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, salvation that we receive on this side of the cross. No one in the Old Testament received that. On this side of the cross, when you receive the Holy Spirit, he now dwells within your spirit, and he will never leave you. He, You can never lose the Holy Spirit. God says that he will be with you forever. So there's a difference between the anointing of the Old Testament and the indwelling of the Spirit in the New. I agree, Jeff, what you're saying. Let me add one more thought to that. This is John the Baptist speaking, and um, he's talking about, you know, on whom you see the Spirit Ascend, descend and remain, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I think here, what it is, it's telling us about the power of this one who came to be baptized named Jesus, that he was not a prophet of the Old Testament. He was not simply a good person, but he was the one that was going to be redemption and life. And baptism scripturally has a lot of connotations to it. It's not only being baptized with water, it's being baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that comes to us through faith. And faith, the Bible says, is a gift as well. So what you have here is that it is Jesus from beginning to end who is indwelling us by the power of his Spirit so that after we first come to know him, we can walk with him the rest of our lives. And that's the goal, because I need Jesus every single day of my life. I just don't need him 25 years ago. I need him right now. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, this question about Bible translations. I was doing morning devotionals with the kids and came across Psalm 8 Verse 5, which uses the pronoun him, makes sense as it is prophetic about the coming of Jesus. But in the New Living uh, Testament, the pronoun they is used. How do we discern which translation to use? A new believer could easily been tripped up by this. Did What was this second version, the New Living? Uh, the New Living, yeah, translation, NLT. So, yeah, so the the... One, you look at multiple different translations to see how different teams of translators translated it, and uh, I, I have a feeling that most would have will say him. Uh, and then the next thing you can do is you can use a number of tools, including Blue Letter Bible, which is online, and there's an app for it, and you can actually go and click on the verse and see the original 
Hebrew in the Old Testament or the Greek in the New Testament. And you can see for yourself uh, and look at the original language to see which way it potentially should be translated. Um, I think it's him. I've always seen this as a messianic passage as well. Um, I think the New Living is, is translation is actually a paraphrase, so it's actually not a strict translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, but a paraphrase of English into other other words to try to express the same meaning using different words. So I don't know that, and I may have this wrong, but I don't think the New Living Translation is actually a strict translation, but rather a paraphrase. Yeah, that's why you need to look at multiple translations. I mean, the translators have a very difficult job, and I'm not justifying they used a plural there when you, this is almost equivalent to what you read in Hebrews chapter 1 about the angels and about Jesus and about who he is. The point is, uh, when you look at this passage, you have to understand that they're trying to figure out how to put this in English as best they can. And sometimes they miss the mark and sometimes they're good. That's why when I preach, not only do I try to look at the original language as best I can, I'll look at anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 translations. And you might say, but Pastor Tom, I don't have that many Bibles in my house. Well, if you got the internet, it's already there for you and it's free. And you can look up and see 20, 30, 40 translations right there in front of you. And it's astounding because most of them are very, very close to one another. Every once in a while, you'll get a little difference like this. Mm-hmm. So, but what you're saying, Jeff, is absolutely right. Gentlemen, I think I really quick, I think yeah. I misspoke. It's the Living Bible that is a paraphrase. I believe the New Living Translation is a translation. Okay. Sorry. No, it's all good. Thanks for the info. And thank you for uh, being on the show today, both of you. Delightful as always. We enjoyed it immensely and, and informative. I'm going out and getting a steak. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm a little jealous as well. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, Kim Dolan Leto is going to join the show. She's going to talk about Bible-based guide to food, fitness, and wholeness. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.